0: Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Stefano Fusaro of ESPN, who's in the bubble covering the MLS's Back Tournament. We've had some great interview guests lately, including Jurgen Klopp, Julie Ehrman, and Jeremy Ebobisi along with many others. So check those interviews out. It would be absolutely huge for this podcast growth if you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, take just a little bit of time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. We'll have Stefano Fusaro on soon, but let's start with some talk about the soccer news with my friend Chris Whittingham, who co-hosts the Chelsea Mic'd Up podcast, which you should definitely check out. Chris, thanks for joining me. How are you?
1: Happy to do it, Grant. How's everything?
0: I'm good. Hanging in. Just kind of like everybody else here. Late July. Slightly less soccer going on now in the wider world, but it's not completely done. And there's an FA Cup final this weekend. Chelsea against Arsenal. And... I'm looking forward to it, and I guess maybe I have an American-centric view, but Christian Pulisic in a cup final is kind of a cool thing to look forward to.
1: And I was kind of hoping that he would turn in a little bit more of a performance for Chelsea when they played Wolves last Sunday, because I do think that part of the Chelsea legacy of the Abramovich era is just how much they've won. I was going through it today for for the Mic'd Up pod, five Premier Leagues, five FA Cups, Three league cups, obviously the Champions League, two Europa Leagues. This is a team that has just acquired trophies, basically one per season in the post Abramovich era. So contributions towards winning major honors is going to be a major part of Christian Pulisic's legacy, especially as he's drawn Eden Hazard comparisons. So I do kind of want to see him turn in the kind of performance that we've seen from him in the Premier League that absolutely, I don't think Chelsea make top four without Christian Pulisic because he gave so much during this post-restart period, but winning something, right? Not lifting the trophy, but being able to say, I contributed towards this, I think this is going to be a big part of his legacy at Chelsea, and you kind of want to see it start on Saturday.
0: Yeah, it's always interesting for me to talk to players about this, even really accomplished players. I remember doing a story a few years ago on Michael Bradley before an MLS Cup final, and it was before he had actually won one, and he really hadn't lifted a trophy ever. I think he technically won a trophy like the 2007 Gold Cup with the U.S., but he had already left that tournament to go to the under 20 world cup and so he didn't really get a chance to lift the trophy and like players even Landon Donovan has said this to me in the past you never know how many chances you're going to have in your career to actually lift a trophy and that's what this sport is all about and so if you think about it in those terms for a 21 year old like Christian Pulisic this is a really big thing
1: of course and he'll have chances to lift gold cups and things like that but this is a player who didn't qualify for the world cup who the most recent gold cup was it was a defeat to mexico and at this club in particular, where you basically are associated with your success, Didier Drogba had massive moments in Champions League finals. I was watching this uh, YouTube highlights montage where he was kind of known as the king of New Wembley, uh, which actually, that he's kind of been supplanted by Olivier Giroud a little bit, uh, who also will probably start the game for Chelsea, who's won 13 of 14 games at Wembley. You kind of want to see big-time players do it in big-time games, and I think uh, for Pulisic, who didn't really quite get it done in the game against Wolves, it would be a really big opportunity for for him to just kind of show that form that we saw against Liverpool that performance against Liverpool that was so good you kind of want you want to see one of those kind of moments and that Arsenal defense might be a team you can get it against
0: which Arsenal team are are we gonna see this weekend because it's been highly variable even that back line has been highly variable there's been moments actually where David Luiz has played pretty well recently but then Back to being himself again so like what do you think we might see this weekend
1: I think Arsenal might open up a little bit more just because I think the the great David Luiz you saw was in a game against Manchester City where I think Arsenal just came to the realization we can't go toe-to-toe with this team we tried to press them at the Etihad and got played off the park let's not same with Liverpool when they put in a really solid defensive performance they were able to hang on for most of that second half and get a win against Liverpool. So I think that was game-specific. I think they will enter a match against Chelsea wanting to open up a little bit more, wanting to play a bit more, and kind of showing what they showed in the first half against Watford in their last Premier League match, where they were 3-0 up after a half hour, but trying to avoid the second half, where they gave up two goals and nearly gave away the game against a team that was eventually relegated. So I do think that Arsenal will enter the game wanting to open up a little bit more, but I'll be curious if they can strike the balance between how good at times they've been defensively and they've got really good attackers. The one thing we know about Arsenal is that they've got Lacazette, they've got Aubameyang, they've got Pepe, they've got a a bunch of different uh, young attacking players that I think will end up being the future of that team. But can you do both? Can you maintain that solidity while also opening up?
0: I hope we have an open game as a neutral. I, I think that would be a lot of fun, a cup final. It's sort of interesting for me just to see Chelsea here because they're still alive in Champions League and they're going to have that round of 16 second leg at Bayern Munich, they're kind of just going straight through here, you know? There's no break at all. And, and I'm, I'm interested to see how, if they're able to handle that, they should be able to. They're pro athletes. They had a pretty long break during the coronavirus shutdown. But can guys keep, Can they keep pushing? Can a guy like Olivier Giroud continue to perform? Because I didn't expect him to continue performing, much less be starting Every game,
1: especially when that top four race was so high pressure, where every game was must win. Every game felt like the biggest game of the season. And then you're playing those must win games every three days. It's impossible to maintain that level of intensity every single game. So the other thing, too, that I'm interested in going forward is because Next season is going to start fairly quickly. The Premier League announced September the 12th, and they're going to play right right through to May. We saw the CONCACAF schedule that was unveiled. They'll have a Euros next summer, and then they'll go right through towards the next season, and then a Winter World Cup. Now, this was the longest break that a lot of these footballers will have ever had. But the question is, is, will it have felt like a break to them? Or will it just felt like, well, I was stuck in my home the whole time. That wasn't a vacation. That wasn't resting and recovering. That was worrying and wondering when we're going to play again. Is that time off going to be enough for players to feel comfortable pushing through, basically, for two-plus years from restart all the way through without a break of a similar size?
0: I think it's going to be a real challenge because players had to stay, or at least try to stay fit during that whole stretch. Not everyone did, but they had to at least try to. And some guys clearly did. And, and so I think having to to push it all the way through is, is a challenge. And I do think down the road, we're going to see some effects on that. Hopefully, team staffs can figure out how to prevent injuries, things like that. But I think it is going to be a challenge. Uh, there is other soccer going on, obviously. The MLS is back tournament is now in the quarterfinals. You've got Philadelphia sporting Kansas City on Thursday night, Orlando LAFC Friday night, and then a doubleheader Saturday night, San Jose, Minnesota, and NYCFC Portland. What's on your mind with this tournament as we, as we head into the quarterfinals? I, I will say this from, from my perspective. I have enjoyed large parts of this MLS is back tournament, sometimes in a sort of this is ridiculous sense, but <laughs> but It's entertaining. You know, and and there's something to that. And I like the regularity and and the the games every night where everyone's eyes are on the same game. And and it's been kind of fun.
1: I agree. I I think this has been mostly a pretty smashing success just in terms of being able to be on network ESPN every night and have this added kind of focus uh, that maybe the sports world wasn't giving MLS before. And just, as you said, the tonnage just every morning, you know, waking up and see which game was on every night, knowing that there's games on. And that, that's like, that's going to slow down now uh, following the quarterfinal stage. But from an on-field standpoint, I was really looking forward to the right side of that bracket, which is Orlando LAFC- and then San Jose to play Columbus. Now, Minnesota like to play the underdog role. They like to be the team. Oh, no one gives us a chance. No one wants to see us here. So I will say that Minnesota getting there is not a huge lament, although Columbus had been the team of the tournament up until that point. But that Orlando LAFC match is still really interesting to me. Obviously, LAFC have the talent. They're scoring goals for fun. They've scored at least three goals in every game of the tournament. Diego Rossi scored two and scored, scored could have scored seven against the Sounders. I was amazing at how much they played Seattle off the park. But Orlando has been really solid under Oscar Pareja. They've figured out their way of playing. They're a bit more solid. They don't give away as much at the back. And so I'm just kind of wondering, does Orlando have something with LAFC for LAFC with two days extra of rest, which given the environment, could be huge. So can they offer a challenge to LAFC? I think that they can. I think the four best teams that we've seen in the tournament have, for the most part, been on that right side of the bracket. Had Columbus gone through, now that it's Minnesota, I'd probably say Sporting Kansas City is somewhere in that conversation. But I think Orlando at this tournament has been really impressive, and I want to see what they can do against LAFC.
0: I'm with you on that, because I think Orlando's really overachieved. Maybe that's more who they are, you know? And and. Let's see how they approach LAFC because it is going to be a big challenge. And you talk about the less fewer days of of rest for LAFC. One of the things that stuck out the most to me about the way they played against Seattle was just how fit they were to be able to press and counter press as successfully and as long as they did in Seattle's end very successfully the whole way through. And it's almost as if, you know, we talk about the defensive question marks for LAFC, and there's a lot in the back, especially without Walker Zimmerman. But if you don't let the team get to your back line, then that helps. And I, I just we will see if they have that kind of fitness again, you know, uh, because to be able to do that for long periods of time in a 90-minute game and that kind of heat and humidity is very difficult. I greatly enjoy watching LAFC play. Like it's it's insane. They're so much fun, and and they create so many chances. And and you mentioned Rossi, like he he had a, like a almost sitters that he was missing. Yes,
1: yeah, they were constantly in behind, and I, I'm kind of waiting as well for Brian Rodriguez to really hit the heights because he hasn't really gotten to the level I think a lot of people expected yet. But Bradley Wright Phillips playing for that team is unfair, especially given the standard that that, that he's reached. And as I think it's funny because you don't want to overpraise or give lofty comparisons to an MLS team compared to a world giant like Man City. But from Bob Bradley's tactics on down, everything you just described is Man City to a T. They're playing through teams. They're pressing them off the ball and, and really trying to get up the field and get at the defenders. And then if you pump a long ball past them, they might be vulnerable in behind and have some shaky defenders is that not Man City or is that not Man City? And I know, like, (laughs) have you seen that ESPN Plus LAFC show and you just hear Bob Bradley talk really, I think since after he left the Egypt national team, he is really converted to the church of Pep and wants to have his teams play like Guardiola teams. And I think LAFC have all of the characteristics of a Pep Guardiola team. i will be curious to see if like Pep teams, maybe they struggle in knockout competitions.
0: Yeah, we'll see. I, I still think they're the best team in this tournament, whether or not they have Carlos Vela. Uh, certainly for me, the most entertaining team, though San Jose has actually put a, a lot of goals up too. It's been entertaining in a sort of wacky zany way, but it's hard to complain when, you know, they're they're finding ways to score this many goals. They're doing it with this kind of crazy Palato Al- Almeida man-marking stuff. You, it's always different when you watch San Jose. And always, in the end, Chris Wondolowski scores a goal.
1: <laughs> I, I really enjoyed Stu Holden's shin and tonic line the other night. Absolutely tremendous. <laughs> Br- brilliant from Stu Holden. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, they're just insane. I mean, I get... There, there's a different level between what LAFC are doing and what San Jose are doing. San Jose is chaotic. They have great moments of quality. I want to give Matias Almeida some credit because I know this is a sore spot for him where because he plays a man-to-man marking system that's so different, you don't really talk about the creative attacking patterns they put together. And at times, it's brilliant. But also at times, it's complete and utter mayhem. Like, it is just insane. And I think what happens is, is over the course of a regular season, you're going week to week you can game plan, you've already played it once, you play it a second time, but in a tournament setting, it's hard to think about playing San Jose. If you're Minnesota last night, you put in 90 minutes of effort against Columbus, you really try and lock down your defense, and then you won on penalties. Whew, we're done. Three days later, you're playing against this crazy man-marking team. How do we figure this out? And, And you've seen a lot of teams get caught early in matches, not really figuring out how to deal with this San Jose system. So I think they have every chance to go all the way through to the final just because it's such a unique style of play and who would want to come up against it in the heat and humidity. But uh, they have been fun in every chaotic mls kind of way.
0: I didn't fully recognize until recently that Matias Almeida coming to MLS. When he signed with San Jose, I was like, that's a really good get when you look at his history uh, as a coach. But I didn't fully re- Grasp just how MLS he is, even though he hadn't been in MLS. It, just in the in the way his teams play, and so I, I appreciate that.
1: Agreed. It's it's so up and down. It's so intensity and movement. Like MLS is a league of just speed for speed's sake. Like we're just constantly moving at a high rate of speed, and uh, so that fits in perfectly to San Jose style of play because you're closing down, you're on top of everyone, and you try and hit on the break and and kind of allow. That chaos to bend to your favor.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So let's finish up here with some television soccer talk. NWSL, which finished up over the weekend with Houston winning the Challenge Cup final over Chicago, got their numbers back a couple days later. 653,000 audience average for this game, which broke what they had for their opening game on big CBS, which was more than a hundred thousand dollars or a hundred thousand less, but that's still a very big number, 653,000. And that's great news for the NWSL. That's good news for CBS and kind of makes you wonder where they could potentially take that number considering part of this game was happening on the last day of the premier league.
1: Right. And the the, the first half hours during the entire finish to that. And To me, this is the power, and we talk all the time about the shifting media landscape and we will cover it uh, in a second, but this is still the power of network television. I think you've seen soccer benefit at times from MLS putting games on Network Fox that maybe don't do great numbers for Network Fox, but do great numbers for MLS. And I think you saw uh, ESPN enter the year saying, we want to put more games on ABC. I think they had five or six on the schedule, full ABC games. So, network television is still a huge draw, especially for sports, especially in the afternoon. I mean, local stations might run infomercials, so instead we'll take the sports programming instead, and especially on a Sunday, when that basically the lead into that are the Sunday shows. CBS Sunday Morning is a very popular show. Face the Nation is a very popular show, so you have people that have their televisions on CBS in the morning, and then this game comes on, and people become curious and want to sample it. And I think ultimately... The strength of NWSL and the strength of soccer is that people, once they do sample it, stick with it, and you, there's always that opportunity to convert. Ultimately, the growing of the fan base of NWSL or any league is about conversion and making fans want to come back. But ultimately, you have to put the games in front of big eyeballs so that they do want to try it. And that's what NWSL has done, and fair play, because it's worked to absolute perfection for them.
0: Yeah, I mean, the only thing I think people are... some people are wondering is like, why not have more games on big CBS during this tournament than there were? There were two, all the rest were on CBS, all access. And, and I get the balance. You're trying to find the right balance. And that brings us to our next discussion, which is the news that Men's UEFA Champions League, which is going to be on CBS owned by CBS in August. They've still got some round of 16 second legs to play, but then there's a final eight single elimination tournament. Um, we found out that quarterfinals through semifinals are all going to be only on the CBS All Access streaming channels, so not a TV channel at all. Now, that's the English-language broadcast. No official announcement yet on the Spanish-language broadcast from Uni- that Univision owns, but very likely that those will will be all on television channels, on on 2DNA. I guess a bit of a question on whether any of those will be on free-to-air Univision.
1: Right. I think think some of them will be on Unimas, uh, which is over-the-air in some markets. Uh, And maybe the final will be on over-the-air Univision, but generally uh, they use Unimas and then uh, Galavision, which is another channel that they own, uh, will have some games as well. But yeah, uh, full streaming for CBS, which... I think pretty similar to the BR strategy is ultimately we talk about exposure and wanting to be on network air and being on big channels. It's a big deal, but ultimately there's still the financial component. And I think what a lot of media companies are saying right now is we can monetize soccer ESPN, ESPN, has attempted to and pretty successfully monetize soccer, given how many people are on ESPN Plus now. CBS is doing it. Bleacher Report tried it with the Champions League. Uh, There are are plenty of other streaming services that are basically saying, well, if soccer fans are this passionate, they'll pay for it. And given the lack of commercial inventory you have within a game, this is how we're going to financially compensate for it. So, I get it because that's ultimately how a company like CBS will spend big money and trying to grow the sport is by, you know, throwing a bunch of money at the Champions League and then using it to grow their streaming product, which is a really important part of their business. Every major media company right now wants to grow their streaming subscriber base. And so how do we do it? Get people to pay for it with what? And the Champions League is the latest thing that's being thrown around right now to try and get people to pay for it. But... From a from a consumer standpoint, it's a lot of hard work to figure out where to watch this game and how much you want to pay for it.
0: Yeah, I think that's part of it. We should say that CBS, uh, the CBS Sports cable channel, will show mm-hmm. the final. Typically, that would be on Big CBS. They said they didn't have enough time to get that squared away, which I understand. I think they also have golf, which gets higher ratings, so I get that. Um, I guess where they went beyond CBS, where they went beyond. Bleacher Report, TNT even, is at the very least, TNT for the quarterfinals and semifinals had those at least one game on at a time on TV. And that is not the case here with CBS. And so I'm very curious to see the numbers that Univision channels get, because it's just going to be easier to see that than the CBS All Access and, and I think a lot of people who don't speak English or I'm sorry, don't speak Spanish will will tune in on the Spanish side just because they won't have to pay for it. But um, it, it's just intriguing to me. I, I feel like I totally understand CBS's business plan and why they're doing this. It's totally rational. I don't totally understand UEFA's perspective here because for UEFA, the big picture should be trying to build as get as many fans in the long term for this sport in the U.S., which is still arguably an immature soccer market. Um, And certainly this does not create the most number of fans in the long term. This is something where established current fans are going to pay that money.
1: I actually think that the Turner model is probably the best one because, as you said, for the most part, the biggest games were on we're on the cable channel, but also if you don't have cable, you could have paid for whatever you want, right? Like whether it's an individual game or for by the month or by the year, you could have paid for just the Champions League, right? If this is all you want, you can pay for it. So in some respects, that was probably the model and Turner just didn't have the time uh, to really build it out. A year and a half later, it was sold to CBS and I guess they did kind of decided, all right, we're going to move on. But I understand the viewpoint, which is that ultimately, only people who are already fans of the Champions League are going to pay for the Champions League. And is that number big enough? And especially considering how big, like it is still, if you put it on over-the-air television, probably the biggest soccer number that you can get annually, right? Because international tournaments vary. And you know, Premier League, but the Champions League final when it was on Fox, would regularly get three, three and a half million viewers on a Saturday afternoon. And that was, that's a big deal for the growth of the sport in this country to have the best soccer, because the Champions League is the best soccer in the world on that kind of platform. And I guess what UEFA just decided is where's the most money and we're going to take it. And look, you can't fault them. I mean, yes, they do want to grow the game somewhat but also they have a responsibility to their shareholders and to the countries and the, the distribution of payments that if CBS is willing to offer the most money, then they're going to take it.
0: Next thing we'll find out announcement-wise probably is who is going to be in the studio show for CBS. The, the rumor is it's going to be they're going Euro. So we'll see it how Euro they go um, on that one. But uh, uh, I think there's going to be Obviously, eyeballs on, on what CBS is doing and, and what kind of first impression they make. Anyway, thanks, Chris, for coming on. It's always great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Grant. The MLS is back tournament continues. And while you can't cheer from your home stadium, you can win a stadium in a box. Thanks to Heineken Zero Zero. Share a photo or video of how you hashtag cheers from home on Twitter. For a chance to win a package full of beer gear, stadium eats, and a real stadium seat. The MLS Stadium experience delivered to your front door. There are 23 packages from 23 U.S. stadiums, but only one lucky winner per team. Must be 21+. plus. To learn more and scores from free Heineken 0 visit HeinekenCheersFromHome.com. That's HeinekenCheersFromHome.com. Heineken 0 now you can. Our guest now is Stefano Fusaro of ESPN. He has been reporting inside the Orlando bubble for the entirety of the MLS's Back tournament, whose quarterfinals begin Thursday night at 8 p.m. Eastern on ESPN and ESPN Deportes with Philadelphia facing Kansas City. Stefano, thanks for coming on the show.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
0: You've been in the bubble since June 30th, I think. It's now late July. How are you holding up?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, it's definitely been a challenge. Uh, What I've called this so far when I've done, you know, other podcasts and other radio hits is uh, a roller coaster of emotions, really, Uh, (laughs) as far as, you know, arriving here and and having the eerie feeling of being in this situation where we kind of fear of the unknown, not knowing exactly what to expect, uh, to then having we not just fear of the unknown to just fear period when when we saw what was happening with FC Dallas and with Nashville, um, the case, I, mean, I, I have a wife and a six month old daughter at home. So this is going through my head as I'm here. And it was obviously just a difficult decision from the very beginning to know that I'm going to be away from them during a pandemic for six weeks. That alone was, was, you know, on my mind. And when all this started happening with, with Dallas and Nashville, it was a, a stressful moment, stressful time. Um, as it's gone along, we've we've gotten a little bit more, you know, past that fear of the unknown and been able to dive into soccer and and now, you know, it it, it became more of like, hey, you know, this is our reality now. We have to accept it and move on and go with it. And, and I think that that's kind of been able to s- settle a little bit of the anxiety that we had maybe at first. Uh, but yeah, I mean, unprecedented experience, something that I will never forget. Uh, Not only have I not covered something like this, I don't think anybody has ever been in a situation like this. So uh, definitely an unforgettable experience.
0: Was there ever a point when like when Dallas and Nashville were getting so many positive tests that you wondered if this tournament was going to end up happening?
2: Yeah, no doubt. Uh, I think that my producer Jim Watalka and I said that several times to each other. Said, well, how much longer before this is called, or how much longer before they're pushing it back an extra ten days uh, to get everybody in here and do that seven-day quarantine that, mind you, the players had an opportunity to, uh, to agree to, and they decided not to. And you know, in hindsight, maybe they're looking back and said, maybe we should have done it that way, so there wouldn't have been any issues with Dallas and Nashville, and they might have been able to play in this tournament. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there was definitely that those moments of like, hey, we don't know whether this is going to continue. Because, like we said, it's that fear of the unknown. It's just something that we've never seen before, never dealt with. So there wasn't a playbook for it, and uh, we can get into more of what you know M- the criticism MLS received. And I do give them credit for sticking to their guns and sticking to what they they felt comfortable with those protocols. Uh, and you know, thankfully we were able to, to get this tournament off and go off and running. But it was un- it was definitely uncertainty during that time.
0: Well, we've seen several rounds now of zero positives in the entire MLS bubble, and we never really did see any evidence of transmission inside the bubble, that all the cases that were detected were coming from the outside and were being caught. Uh, So you do have to give some credit to MLS for that and for the people they've hired. Um, I'm wondering, what has been the most unusual part of this work experience for you?
2: Uh, The most unusual part, Um, I think just being essentially under the same roof with the entire MLS delegation, players, coaches, staff, officials, league officials. And, you know, I've been fortunate enough to cover this league now for a couple years, you know, away from my normal day-to-day as far as doing sideline reporting and different stories for both ESPN Deportes and ESPN FC. Um, And so I do know uh, several players and coaches and staff uh, around the league and being under the same roof going into this I'm thinking wow you know it'll be pretty cool to have the access to these guys you know to meet the guys that I don't know and to have conversations with the guys that I do know and I've been able to do it but it's always that uneasy feeling like hey I don't want to come too close hey I don't want to you know we're living in the same roof so I want to give you your space at the same time you know not not miss the opportunity to have a conversation with someone that I can get some information that's valuable to our broadcast or just to the greater sense of what's actually happening here Uh, and I think that that's kind of been the an easy balance right of not knowing you know hey I want to talk to you but also want to give you your space and 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 not you know respect the situation that we're in because it's so uh, it's so awkward Um, I I think that's been probably the weirdest thing also probably the the dealing with food exactly where to eat how to eat you know trying to eat healthy but not Knowing that I can't just walk into any restaurant on this because certain nights we're allowed in, certain nights we're not. It's the players are tier one, we're tier two. So they're they try to divide the restaurants a little bit. So that's also been a really big challenge and, and kind of weird. I don't know what to eat and it's six o'clock and I'm like, oh, six or seven o'clock, and I'm like still figuring out should I order something from outside? Should I get something go downstairs and get something? So I think that's also been a, a challenge for sure.
0: I can imagine. Um uh- I, could you lead me through like what has a typical work week been like for you down there? I imagine you've got a lot of games you are doing a lot of media hits you're probably doing a lot of interviews right
2: yeah uh, I mean it really has depended on the on the day uh but i mean our our busiest days were, were days that we had triple headers, where so we had a nine a m game an eight p m game and a ten thirty p m game um and when we had those, uh, it was a challenge for sure to be up at 6 a.m. and be there, you know, for a game at 9, which, you know, the players obviously had it r- harder than we did because they had to actually go out there and play at 9 a.m. But at the same time, you know, not used to covering a soccer game or any game really at 9 o'clock in the morning. and never have. So that's been a challenge. Um, and, and what we've tried to do uh, on the downtime and, and this the spaces between games has been doing interviews. Uh, not only for AIR, not only for SportsCenter and ESPN FC and ESPN.com and ESPN Deportes, but also I've never had to do this many games of sideline reporting in such a short time. And the prep time is a lot shorter than what I've always been accustomed to. So those interviews didn't only serve as uh, as content for our platforms, but also for my preparation uh, because we don't have the normal production meetings that we would have with, you know, a Bob Bradley before an LAFC game, or you know, how it normally is when we're on a regular season preparing for a broadcast. So that's been the challenge. But also, we've tried to combine interviews to be able to serve multiple purposes uh, for what we're doing here. Um, and uh, yeah, look, it's it, like I said, it's been it's been a challenge to. To really balance all of the different requests that we've gotten from here, but that's a good thing. Uh, I, I was talking to you know, I was talking before we got, we got on here that uh, I hadn't been on TV for four months. I had been, I think, on TV twice in five months. First day I was here, I was on TV four times in a day. So that just goes to show you that this was an opportunity that I had to take. But it was also when I when I, after that first day, I realized, wow, I really did get myself into something here, didn't
0: I? <laughs> We've got eight teams left in this tournament. If you had to pick, what what do you think is the best story, in your opinion, of the eight teams remaining?
2: I think that there was some teams that had issues getting here. And and those were really because of the different rounds of testing that had to happen before those teams arrived. But I think most of those teams have now have now been eliminated from the tournament. I feel like from a pure soccer standpoint, I think Minnesota United has been extremely interesting. Um, first of all, Adrian Heath, one of my favorite characters in the entire league, without a doubt. He's great. Uh, and, and I've been able to have several conversations with him. But what I see with them is they're a team that didn't play 11v11 11 11 before their first game in this tournament throughout their entire, for, for over four and a half months. And because they didn't have enough players fit. To put 11v11 on a practice pitch and be able to practice. And that very first game against um, Sporting Kansas City, they played awful for about 87 minutes. Awful. Oh. Not good. Couldn't combine a pass. Their midfield was all over the place. Uh, but they were able to still be down only one nothing And in stoppage time 92nd 97th minute get the winner advance uh excuse me win that first game shock shock sporting kansas city who had played i think had 14 shots on goal in that game um that was kind of the beginning of what we're seeing with minnesota united they're not at full strength they don't have all their players they're missing Eichel, para Luisa marie is coming back from an injury uh and you're really seeing a team that on paper, isn't the, isn't anywhere near the top of the teams that are in this tournament, but I've been able to grind and get results. And just seeing that has been fun to see. In a time where we've been really dealing with so many things outside of soccer, it's been cool to see a story that revolves around soccer that has been interesting to follow in a team that isn't at full strength, isn't playing that well, but still getting results and still getting something out of the game, and they're still in the quarterfinals.
0: I'll be honest with you. When we learned that Ike Opara would not be available for this tournament, I basically wrote off Minnesota. I'll admit it. And, you know, but then to get past Columbus, which I felt had been at least the best Eastern team that we had seen in this tournament, just really impressive. Well, you know, well done on the penalties last night as well. Um, The group stage games all counted as regular season games in the standings. But the elimination games in this tournament don't count in the standings. There are obviously still incentives. You've got a $1.1 million prize for winning. Uh, you've got a CONCACAF Champions League berth that goes to the winner. Do you get the sense that teams and coaches still feel as incentivized in the knockout rounds, even though there's not regular season game records on the line?
2: I do. I think you saw it last night um, with Portland and Cincinnati. Uh, did you see Giovanni Savarese's Uh, reaction after they won the penalty shootout I mean he I mean it was a full-on fist pump screaming and it was fun to see that uh look I think that especially because of everything that that this the world has been through and and including these teams uh, I think there is a a sense of like you know wanting to win a trophy and and the CCL spot I think is a big deal right the Congo Cup Champions League spot I think is a massive deal for all of these teams um but yeah the, the the regular season games the group games that were also counted kind for of regular season, uh, you know, I was speaking with Thierry Henry uh, before one of their games, the Montreal Impact, and and I asked him about, hey, you know, you need to win to advance, you know, or you you need a result in this game you know, what's the sense going into it? And he goes, and he just says, it's funny how all of you forget that these are all regular season points. And I'm like, no, Terry, I I didn't forget, but, you know, you're trying to win a trophy. He's like, yeah, but we're more concerned about the points. At that moment, he was, until they advanced to the next round. Then he started thinking about the trophy, at least publicly, right? Uh, But it it was funny to see that, you know, when they are in that group stage, yeah, they were really focused on making sure they can get three points for the regular season. But at the same time, we don't know when that's going to be just yet. There are some plans out there, but... You know, there's still so much uncertainty like everything else in the world right now uh, that you're seeing them, the players, I really believe now, especially in the quarterfinals, looking to looking for that trophy, looking to celebrate something. Uh, and and I think that's the biggest thing, right?
0: Yeah. I, I'm wondering, you've done a lot of interviews in this tournament. What are some of the most fun interviews you would say you have done?
2: We got a couple actually still lined up for this tournament that I think are going to be pretty fun. But, uh, but Chris Wondolowski, uh, I think, was fantastic with us. Uh, as he normally is, um, and we uh, we we got a little a little game going with him where you know we saw what happened in their previous game now in the round of 16 where he got a goal that was just so typical. Chris Wondolowski just oops off of my shin and ends up in the goal. How many times have we seen that? So we did an interview with him where with a couple of his teammates where um, you know. We asked some of the some of the guys from San Jose to say, you know, he's always in the right place. Just look. So we got them uh, playing Connect Four on these big Connect Fours that are set up around the property. And, uh, you know, one of his teammates about to throw in the last four to Connect Four. And he comes in, grabs it, slams it down and celebrates and goal. And it was just like, look, Chris is in the right spot at all times. Look at him. He, and I think that that was a lot of fun uh, to do. And we got a couple other things set up that that I think will be, you know, I love to show the human side of these guys and I think that that's kind of what reporters are trying to do when they're trying to interview these athletes, not just as soccer players but as humans. And we're all going through the same thing here inside of this bubble. So if we can make it as fun as possible, for not only for us but for and our viewers, but also for the players, I think that's a win all around.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, what is sort of the breakdown on how much English language work you're doing right now and how much Spanish language work you're doing?
2: I, I'd say about seven, 80-20 uh, now. Um, maybe at the beginning of the tournament a little bit more just because um, ESPN Deportes ended up sending a Tier 4 reporter here. So they're not allowed in the bubble, but they are at the games. Uh, ESPN Deportes, uh, the way they do things is a little more, they they like to have a reporter on the scene reporting uh, on what just happened. We were able to do that for a lot of a lot of the games that we were at. Uh, but there were certain games that were on Fox at 10.30, uh, 1030 p.m. where – Our bosses said, don't go to those games because we had to be at the 9 a.m. game the next morning. Even though we did do that turnaround a few times for all ESPN games, but if the game wasn't on ESPN, uh, our bosses were like, hey, rest, be back in the morning. So ESPN deportes asked us to do some of those assignments late night and we said look our bosses have asked us to not go so then that's when that all you know all started and they decided to send a tier four reporter but as far as interviews go I've done a ton of interviews in Spanish with with a lot of our athletes uh a lot of the athletes Lucas Salarian uh Gustavo Bo, uh plenty of interviews Uh, Chicharito Hernandez we did that uh both in English and Spanish so I think the interviews have been more what ESPN Deportes has requested of us uh after probably the first three weeks in here um, okay. uh, but now I would say now it's about eighty twenty 20 for, for, the domestic side.
0: Whenever we have someone on, I think our listeners are always sort of interested in finding out what their story is. So, so what's your story? Where are you from? How did you get into this business and, and what did you do before you got to ESPN?
2: Yeah, well, I'm, uh, I'm from Miami, Florida, born and raised. My dad's from Argentina. So that's where my, uh, my soccer, my, my, the passion for soccer and the, it's in my blood. It definitely comes from him. Uh, and from that side of the family, um, I've been working in this field since I was 18 years old. Uh, I worked at a local station in Miami for Univision, uh, working as an editor, working you know working my way up. Was able to finally become a sports anchor there after several years of, of being behind the scenes. And uh, and yeah, I was with Univision in both Miami and Houston uh, for thir- 12 years uh, before making a jump back to Miami to my hometown to be with, to work with NBC6 locally as well. Um, worked there for a few years and uh, and decided to uh, decided that I wasn't didn't want to do the local news thing anymore. It was it was getting harder and harder to to cover sports in local news uh, in certain markets. And uh, when ESPN had the position, I had interviewed with ESPN twice before with no with uh, to, to no avail. And fortunately, uh, an opportunity arose and I was able to interview and get the position with ESPN as a bureau reporter. They moved me to tech back to Texas. So I was in Dallas for a year before moving back to Houston. Uh, and I've been with the company now for uh, almost four years and and yeah, I mean look, it's it, it's a dream job. I lo- I, I, I'm fortunate to be able to cover sports for a living. It's what I love. Um, and, and now being able to to, fo- to work a lot in soccer, it, it's something that I'm super grateful for just because uh, it's be- it's always been my passion. I, I loved all sports, but soccer's always been my passion. and being and, and I, I really do feel not only has soccer my passion, The desire my desire to help the game grow has always been really really important to me and the fact that i'm getting to do this and i would like to do more but the fact that i'm getting to work in in soccer and getting to help uh grow the game and 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 spread knowledge about the game to the casual fan i think has been a really cool experience and i want to continue to do it
0: I, i think it's interesting for a guy from argent or who has argentine roots that you're not wearing a Boca or River hat, my friend. You are wearing a Liverpool FC hat. What's the story there?
2: So I'm a Boca Juniors fan. My I was raised as a Boca Juniors <laughs> fan. I do have a Boca Juniors shirt in here, in my uh, in my uh, luggage over here. Uh, Liverpool, The how that all started uh, in 2012 when I first moved to Houston. All of my friends in Houston were British expats. And they were have been working there for years. And I had... The Premier League has always been my favorite league to watch. It always has been, uh, you know. The Argentinian league is fun and it's great, but you know, I'm going to spend a lot more time watching the Premier League, and it's always been my favorite league to watch. I never had a team, and in 2013, uh, there was my one friend uh, from Liverpool who lived in Houston. This guy, I applaud him, would go out all every Friday night, every Saturday night. He'd be out at the pubs drinking, having a great old, grand old time, no matter what. That next morning, doesn't matter what time Liverpool was kicking off, he was back at the pub, at the German pub that was right by our house, right by our apartment complex, that he would be there to watch Liverpool. And and I respected that. And I would join him because I'd say, OK, let's go. I'm going to go with you. And that was the year that, uh, that they had Luis Suarez. It was Luis Suarez's final year, Raheem Sterling, Steven Gerrard. And they finished second in the league that year. And it was just such a fun team to watch. And I respected my friend for being there. And he told me more about, you know, different things about the club that I just didn't know. And I fell in love. And I said, this is the team I'm going to support. So now I've been supporting them. Even though I haven't dealt with some of the pain that all of the Liverpool fans have experienced for 30 years, I have dealt with it for the last seven years. So I I consider myself a good fan and a real fan. And now we got some trophies on our side.
0: Congratulations on the title this season. Thank you. you. Uh, how just in terms of being able, you know, in the bubble, there's a pandemic still going on in the world. Uh, your family is in Texas, which is kind of a hot spot. Like, have you been able to to be in touch with them? On a regular basis, uh, given all the the time you're spending working.
2: Yeah, I mean, FaceTime is a is is definitely a heaven sent. Uh, it's been it's been amazing to be able to, to to talk to him every day, to talk to my wife, to talk to uh, to see my daughter. And like I said, she's six months old. She just started crawling, so we didn't get to see that live. But thankfully for FaceTime, I've been able to see it uh, that way. Um, and yeah, look, I mean, it was it was definitely a difficult decision uh, to come here to go away from them and that conversation with my wife, you know, I won't I'm not ashamed to say it definitely included some tears. And, you know, just I'm like, hey, this is what's going to happen. And, and it was very difficult. Um, thankfully, technology has been very helpful and, and usually able to to sneak in a conversation here and there, even if it's short, with my long hours while I've been here. Um, but I, you know, it, I'm grateful for it. But at the same time, I, I am, you know, I, I, at some point now, we're getting close to the end definitely really excited about being able to go back to them and seeing them but i but i also need to worry that when i get back i do want to stay away for a couple of days and just be sure and be safe and look we're being tested every other day for covid i've done 14 tests now and they've all come back negative thankfully uh but then you know i have to jump back on a plane and go home so that's something that i'm thinking of even as safe as i'm gonna to try to be on that plane you just don't know and uh and i'm I'm gonna, I am going to have to to keep my distance for the first, I'd say, two days. I'm going to try to get another rapid test when I get to Houston just to be 100% safe. Uh, and like I've, I've told my wife before, if it was just me and her, things would be different. I mean, when you have a six-month-old daughter, things change. And I'm quickly finding that out, especially in 2020.
0: <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. But that's got to feel going to be a great feeling when you can get home, when you can finally spend time with your family again. I do hope that ESPN gives you a little time off after this stretch of, of doing so much work. Stefano Fusaro is with ESPN. He's been reporting inside the Orlando bubble for the entirety of the MLS's Back tournament. Quarterfinals begin Thursday night at 8 p.m. Eastern on ESPN and ESPN Deportes, Philadelphia versus Kansas City. Stefano, thanks so much for coming on the show.
2: Thanks for having me, Grant.
0: Thanks for listening to football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you can do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Stefano Fusaro, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. I also want to thank Taylor Rockwell and Daryl Grove of the Total Soccer Show for everything they've done to help get this show off the ground. I'm back soon with another interview with someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.